please come in. You're right on time. The door only opens when the clock strikes midnight. Georgia and Hannah are preparing to broadcast from the Belfry. Just like this old bell tower, they have many stories to tell. Some old and some new. Follow me up these stairs, but mind your step. Ah, they're waiting for you. Well, my first line says, hey, do you want to know something weird? (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) Okay, here it goes. In... 1922, one of Freud's essays called Medusa's Head, which is um, Das Medusenhaupt in German. Look at me go. Awesome. It was published, which, um, listen, he theorized that the popularity of stories involving decapitation at the time was a representative of a social anxiety about castration. Isn't um, that so fun and quirky? That's <laughs> so fun. He was just always thinking about the genitals, wasn't Man, he? Man, I think that a lot of the shit that he came up with says a lot more about him than anyone else. Yeah, like who raised that man? <laughs> <laughs> so without getting too deep into that, he was basically comparing the petrification of looking at Medusa to getting hard like reassuring the fact that you still have a penis clearly overlooking the more likely interpretation of you know being frozen in fear and also feminist critics of freud were like wow male gaze much that's all i'm thinking about right but women are so emotional and silly so apparently around the time that he originally wrote that essay One of the morbid fascinations in pop culture was of Salome. Do you know anything about her? Because I sure didn't. That name sounds very familiar. I know Salome because of Mozart, and that's it. That's all I got. And I don't think that's the same. It it might be, but I don't know. I don't know. Are you about to teach me about it, or should we do a quick Goog? Um, Well, okay. I don't know much, like I said, about this part of the Bible at all. I can tell you. Salome was a Jewish princess who danced for Herod, the same Herod who ordered all the babies to be killed because he felt threatened by the baby Jesus, as Jeremy Clarkson says. Yeah, Um, well aware of King Herod, unfortunately. So Salome danced for him, and I don't really know the details here, but Basically, he was like, damn, girl, I'll give you anything you want, even though this is his stepdaughter, by the way. So her mom married him. And so her mom was like, ask him for the head of John the Baptist. And this is how John the Baptist got beheaded, uh, because he didn't want Herod to marry this lady. Such drama. I know. All of these people are real people, but there's no actual historical evidence to support any of this happening. Like, I think the primary texts even indicate that 
Herod died before the mom would have married him or something. I can't remember. Not important. Anyway, so this story was adapted a lot in the late 1800s and early 1900s. There's uh, a Strauss opera, uh, a play by Oscar Wilde. There's poetry and ballet and paintings. And actually, one of the paintings at the intro of What We Do in the Shadows, you know how like they all have the different characters' faces put in them? One of the paintings of Nadia is actually of Salome. It's the one that everybody orders from, oh, shit. from Red Bubble. Oh! This one. I'm sending it to you. Okay. Like, it's the one you're thinking of, I'm sure. Yep. Yeah. That's Holy shit. a portrait oh, wow. of Salome. That is so blurry. Interesting. It doesn't look like that on my end. R.I.P. But that really popularized the concept of a femme fatale character leading men away from righteousness and all that bullshit. And Freud was like, mm, must be a universal obsession. But it, it wasn't. I think it reflects that Victorian stereotype of like women having to be all done up and not acting like this, you know, being all humble and righteous and modest and whatever. Women can only be one thing at a time. Obviously. As you know. It's depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Just in a different uh, a different font. Yeah. Yeah. The general interpretation today is just that concept of things coming back to haunt you. Like there's a Gothic studies professor who says that the headless horseman, a decapitated man, is representative of a past haunting you. But I think that's true for a lot of horror tropes and paranormal tropes in media these days. Hashtag trauma. I don't know. I don't know. All I see these days, like, at least in the past five years, is just rehashing old stories. Um, I think that, like, the horror genre of the 80s and 90s was very much all about the trauma. Yeah, but I think that whatever is trending in horror is usually representative of general anxieties that are happening socially, like zombies. Yeah, you know, it's like that dead. that fear of the outbreak, that fear of yeah, the world ending, and yeah. everything. Being and then destroyed. COVID happened, and we were the like, COVID. we don't want to deal with zombies or outbreaks <laughs> anymore. We want to move on to something different. Yeah, and that I think maybe that's why the horror genre is sort of taking a step back and redoing the things that have already been done. But then there are movies like. Or that are um, more focused on thrillers like Midsummer or um, Hereditary, which are, I think, horror movies in a way. Yeah, but it's more about um, the especially. atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That's why I really like Crimson Peak. Cause, like, yeah, it's a yeah. ghost story, but it's way more about the atmosphere and the tension than gore or mm -hmm. jump scares or whatever. It's... Which maybe that's, we're just desensitized to that now. So yeah creative people have to find different ways to scare the shit out of us yeah and that's to make things tense again but also all my favorite you know like lovecraft and poe and all that the horror is usually unseen it's all about like using your imagination to think about what the terrible thing is it usually goes unspoken and i think that's better because we're always scared of what we don't know right so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Not knowing is scarier than, you know, just like cutting to, I don't know, a gross thing. Yeah. I tend to steer away from those for sure. Yeah. 
Anyway, so yeah, I was going to talk about Legends of Headless Horsemen. Okay. And we'll see how many tangents we go on, and I'm going to go on one right fucking now. (laughs) Because while I was reading about this, there was a BBC article, which I'll link, that mentioned how the act of beheading is associated with this barbarians at the gate mentality. It's something done by the primitive other, and it reminded me of my theory paper. So for everyone out there, Hannah and I both have degrees in anthropology, even though we went to different schools at different times. So in my theory class, our big semester project was to pick a book that met certain requirements, and then you have to analyze the theory that's used by the author. So the book I picked is called Cannibal Talk, The Man-Eating Myth and Human Sacrifice in the South Seas. I never want to think about Foucault ever again. What do you mean? Fucking hell. Fuck that guy. Okay. What a great dude. (laughs) But the premise is that cannibalism as the horror trope we know, like the flesh-eating boogeyman, only exists as a result of colonialism when European explorers like dumbass Captain James Cook made it to the islands where anthropophagy was a normal cultural practice and then they demonized it. And because it was so shocking, I'm sure it was widespread immediately. Yeah, but then they were like, you know, it's it's that thing. Like, we don't understand this. We don't do this. Therefore, it's terrible. Yeah, it's taboo. It's yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. So tying that back into beheading, the first place my brain goes when I think about beheading is like Tudor England or the French Revolution. Nothing primitive, just white people. <laughs> Justice, maybe? In one sense or another. Do you want to take a moment to sing some Les Mis? Oh, God. I was just listening to Les Mis earlier. I don't need any more of that. Of course you were. Um, the BBC article also mentioned something about how we locate identity in the neural networks of the brain. So, like, without our heads, we have no identity, which I think if I were really high, I could process that into some crazy thoughts, but right. not right uh, now. Is that Milo? Yeah, hold on one second. I can see his tail poking from underneath the door. <laughs> this may be a common theme. It's what I get for shutting the door. It's okay. He's just saying hi to everyone. He's just saying hi. Anyway, how many different headless entities do you know from lore or legend? Oh, dear. Uh, First one that comes to mind is nearly headless Nick, but I guess he's not even headless because he's nearly headless. (laughs) (laughs) That's why he's not allowed on the headless hunt. Duh. Yeah, yeah. It's still such a shame that they didn't talk about him so much in in the movies. Or the fact that they completely omitted Peeves. Well, yeah idiots and you didn't add too much to the plot so i guess whatever no it was just good world building yeah i agree he was in the games the pc games you ever play those i sure did hell yeah i can't remember Uh, much about them but i did (laughs) no i do remember like the voice actor for harry and how he said certain spells that's all i remember do you have anything to say sir milo oh my god he's so cute i think he's just gonna hang out for a sec oh my goodness Anyway, to answer your question, I don't know very many, but I'm kind of hoping that you'll tell me. Okay, I'm going to tell you, you didn't even say the obvious one, but it's fine. We'll get there. I'm going to tell you five, and then I'll tell you the obvious one. And then you're going to be like, oh, duh. Yeah. 
so starting in Ireland with the I've heard it pronounced both Dullahan and Dullahan. I don't really know which is correct or more accurate, but I'm just going to say Dullahan because I can. The Dullahan is known as the original headless horseman in Ireland, apparently. And this might be where the stereotypical image of the rider holding its head under its arm comes from. So You mean it's not a pumpkin? (laughs) (laughs) It could be a pumpkin. Sorry. Here's a description from ye old Wikipedia. The mouth is usually in a hideous grin that touches both sides of the head. Its eyes are constantly moving about and can see across the countryside even during the darkest nights. The flesh of the head is said to have the color and consistency of moldy cheese. The Dolahan is believed to use the spine of a human corpse for a whip, which Ooh. I want in D&D, please. And its wagon is adorned with funeral objects. It has candles and skulls to light the way. The spokes of the wheels are made from thigh bones, also known as femurs. Yeah. The wagon's covering is made from worm-chewed paul, like the cloth that covers casket uh or dried human skin i like that better dried human skin always a big fan of human skin one of my weird obsessions i don't know if we've talked about this before but one of my weird obsessions is with books that are bound in human skin you have mentioned that before i would love to get you a book (laughs) bound with human skin however i think my personal ethics cancels that out i also don't want to own one i just want to like go to a library that has them and look at them Okay, but what if it's like made of someone you know? Like, what if, what if someone bound a book made of my skin after I die? No. Would you want it? What if I gifted it to you? That'd be even worse. <laughs> Would that mean that I lay a curse upon you? I just think that's a guaranteed way to get haunted. Well, yeah, but I don't intend to haunt anybody. So. Although, you know, I don't have a problem. I'm. We can talk about Birkin hair because that's a whole episode sometime. But like. Burkskin was made into a book and I'd be fine with that but he was an asshole so it's fine. Gonna talk about a lot of assholes today I think. Yeah ethically also it just probably would look bad job wise you know. Yeah. (laughs) Conflict of interest or something I don't know. Yeah as being a proponent of yeah certain ethics and laws you have to you know maybe not have a book made of human skin. Right. The ancient Irish believed that wherever the Dullahan stops riding, someone is going to die and it calls out their name to draw away the soul of the person and then that person just immediately dies. And some people also believe that gold can make it disappear. Uh, That's its kryptonite. To me, it just kind of sounds like a reaper or or an omen, like a a death omen, like a banshee or a a harbinger of, of doom or something. I don't know. Doom, despair, death, all D words. Dick also is. My favorite things. Speaking of, going back to your first comment. Yeah. In Freud. Anyway, sorry. Uh-huh. Uh, and then some people also theorize that the Dolahan could be an adaptation of the Celtic fertility god called Chrome Duff. Chrome Duff? Chrome Duff. It's Irish. Uh, my autocorrect changed it to like a google chrome chrome dove. good job thanks google i believe 
that deity had some kind of altercation with St. Patrick and he was kind of stamped out by Christianity, shockingly. But he allegedly demanded blood sacrifice through decapitation. So the theory is that his influence still exists in the Dolan legend. How much of that is classic Christianity demonizing pagan gods? Who knows? I would assume it's at least some. A little bit. That's kind of what they did, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Scotland also has its own story of Ewan the Headless or... Ewan, I don't know. I'm not sure of the pronunciation here because in Gaelic it's spelled E-O-G-H-A-N, like how Irish spells Owen, Mm -hmm. but it's spelled E-W-E-N, so it may be more like Ewan McGregor because it's Scottish, you know? Yeah. Um, So anyway, who cares? He tried to use force to negotiate getting more land from his dad and it didn't go well for him. And the story says he was beheaded in 1538 on the Isle of Mull, and he still rides around on his horse, haunting people with no head. So now what you're saying is we ha- when we go to Scotland and yeah. open up a bed and breakfast, yeah, um, it should be there. Yeah, sure. That's so fine. then we can, you know. Yeah, because Mull is on the west side of the island, which would also be closer to Skye and all the... The, the cool ones so yeah, and the highlands and such so to finish off with the british isles there is also gawain or gawain however i think gawain is more correct but most people these days just say gawain and the green knight that guy from Gw- Arth- gawain <laughs> the round <Rochester. laughs> yeah uh, he's uh-huh. a knight of the round table indeed. sure is okay please uh, <laughs> Arthurian legend, yes. So Gawain is a knight of the round table, and one day this green knight strolls up to the round table holding an axe and gives them a challenge, and he says that any knight can take a swing as long as it can be returned in a year and a day. So Gawain the Rock Johnson just mm-hmm. takes a swing and cuts his head off. Wow. And then the green knight picks up his head and says, cool bro, in a year and a day, you're going to meet me at the green chapel. He's clearly not afraid of castration (laughs) turns out the green knight is just a regular dude who was bewitched and everything is fine the end it was kind of anticlimactic i don't know i was gonna say dude's got some steel balls for that see you in a year and a day um yeah the fact that he just goes um okay over to the european mainland there are a couple folk tales from the brothers Grimm about headless huntsmen which i maybe knew about but forgot one of them is about a woman in Saxony who was out gathering acorns. Why? She hears a hunting bugle and turns around to see a headless guy riding a horse. That's about it. Was he bugling? Uh, yeah. How was he blowing a bugle if he didn't have a head, therefore he didn't have a mouth? Yeah. What if he's holding a head and the head is holding the bugle in its teeth? Uh-huh. The other one is also set in Saxony. It sounds like a version of a traditional folktale of a wild huntsman. The main character is a guy named Hackleberg. Dumb okay. name. <laughs> and he was just so into hunting that instead of going to heaven, he wanted to stay on earth and hunt until judgment day, which sounds exhausting. I know. Who wants to do that? I don't even want to do my hobbies until the day the I know. I, can, I'd sleep. Yeah. Is that fine? I mean, that's just being dead, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> It's just like uh, 
being dead light. Yeah. Like beta being dead, sorry. Uh, he gets his wish and was said to ride around Germany hunting with a pack of what sound like hellhounds, like fiery black hounds. I'm not really sure where the headless part comes in here. Maybe it wasn't headless then and it became like an amalgamation of these like folk stories put together. I don't know. Germany is a weird place. You're telling me. I would love to go to Germany. Yeah, same. Uh, visit the land of my people. Some of my people. I don't Some of your people that persecuted the other, some of your people. Sure, yeah. Uh, However, there is a German poet, a guy with another dumb name, Gottfried Berger, but it's spelled like Gottfried, and burgers are fried, I guess. Now I'm just hungry. (laughs) I can't with this. These names are so silly. And the poem is just called The Wild Huntsman, and that poem was translated into English by Sir Walter Scott in 1796, and... A lot of scholars believe that that was just based on a North, a North myth, a Norse myth. Uh huh. A North myth. So I assume the Grimm version also just has the same origin, and they all are retellings of that somehow. Probably the Wild Huntsman sounds very familiar. Also, it sounds like all the bad guys in other Grimm. Well, yeah. When did you say it was translated stories? into English? Seventeen ninety-six. Okay. I probably did not read it then. <laughs> I've not read many things from the 1700s, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not one of them. I don't know if Candide was that early, but if it is, you should definitely read Candide. Okay. It's so funny. Let me write it down. It's by Voltaire. Oh, of course. Fucking Voltaire. Do you think I can find a Gen Z lingo version of that book? Have you Have you seen that? Probably. <laughs> yeah, authors are like re- rewriting classical novels using modern modern vernacular, which is really funny. So stuff like lit, dope. I feel like that's how my I describe all of these historical events though. Yeah. I mean, I I did just say cool bro, a year and a day meet me at the green chapel. <laughs> <laughs> meet me in the pit, scrub lord. <laughs> So this poem that Walter Scott translated is about a guy who is keeper of the royal forest and he's a major dick and he's also all about the chase which sounds just like the other guy. Um, And you know this is from the Middle Ages because a lot of why people think he's a dick is because he hunts on Sundays and other days that should be dedicated to religious worship like Easter or whatever. And he was an asshole to the peasants who lived in or around the woods and would be oppressive and probably beat them up for fun. And I don't know. He sounds like the kind of guy who would like, who wouldn't denounce white supremacists on TV or, you know, whatever. I agree. That I kind of guy. just picture him barreling through the woods, coming up behind some peasant, just clocking him in the back of the head with like a, like a bat or something. No, he'd probably just give him a wedgie. Maybe. Yeah, use like a long stick and pick them up by the undies. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say by the loincloth. What's the matter with me? That's... It's caveman times. Yeah, in the Middle Ages. Who knows? In all the factual inaccuracy, inaccuracy of caveman's ex- existence. Yes. Locals claimed that after he died, they could still hear him yelling and his dogs barking and his horses galloping all throughout the forest. So it sounds pretty much the same as... other the other stories sir walter scott was probably an influence 
on Washington Irving. So the main thing I really wanted to get into is Washington Irving and the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, America's first ghost story published in 1820. So I was going to give you uh, a little bio and then a synopsis of the story, sprinkle in some like literary analysis, maybe because everyone knows the story of Sleepy Hollow, but how many people have actually read it this this day and age, you know? Who's that guy in the movie who's really hot? Johnny Depp? Yeah. <laughs> you forgot Johnny Depp? Yeah. It's been a while since I've watched that. We watched it last time we dyed hair. Oh, I don't remember Well, that. we started it. I, you also I, didn't have your class. I couldn't on, see right? it. I didn't, I I didn't, so I really was not paying attention. Yeah. So the Tim Burton movie is very different from the original story. So, okay. Washington Irving was born in... NYC in 1783. I made it rhyme. <laughs> For those that don't know, that's New York City. Yeah, idiots. <laughs> he was known as the first American man of letters. So obviously, according to Supernatural, he just hunted demons in his free time. He probably had a lot of that. Yeah. White man in the 1800s. But yeah. He's really a Cod Mather's asshole, probably. Probably. Fuck that guy. All right. Anyway, it refers to him being an intellectual, like the terminology of the time was replaced by intellectual. He's an intellectual. But that sounds more boring. I would rather my resume, my CV, say George Abrams, man of letters, than George Abrams, an intellectual. (laughs) One of them sounds like you just made it up. The other sounds like... Sounds like I made up both of them. You met me. (laughs) But you would be a woman of letters anyway. I can be whatever I want to be, okay? Okay, all right. Your binary terms don't have to define me. Sorry. That sounded disingenuous. I'm sorry. I'll be a man of letters if I want to be. You you be a man of letters. And I'll wear a skirt while doing it. Yeah. Just don't show your ankle, because fuck you. (laughs) God forbid. Anyway, Irving moved up to Terrytown in 1798 to escape an outbreak of yellow fever that had spread to New York. I don't remember what yellow fever does. Maybe I should have looked it up. But Uh, either way, it's gross. Malaria. Oh, that's right. It is malaria. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're right. The dengue fever. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It really fucks you up. Gross. I know a guy. I went. You know a guy with malaria. <laughs> I know a guy who got malaria. He was in oh, the shit. army. Oh my goodness. And he contracted malaria and he said it did fuck him up for a hot minute. All I really know of it is that you you get very dehydrated because yeah, you shit of. a lot. You get crazy, crazy runs, among other things. It sounds like a normal day to me. <laughs> Listen, I'm saying, but you know... When you live in a day and age or a geographical location that doesn't have immediate access to fresh, clean water, yeah. you're going to be boned. Drink some fresh, clean water, you thirsty bitches. Say no more. <laughs> you chronically dehydrated bitches. It's me. Uh, anyway, okay. So this guy, Washington Irving, passed the bar exam when he was 23 in 1806. I guess that was probably normal at the time. I don't know. Seems like an overachiever to me. Because he had also written several essays 
most of which seem to be social commentary on the satirical side. If you just think of all of those dudes in like the beginning of the United States, Alexander Hamilton, who was like Ooh, yeah. 18 or something. In 1809, so he would have been, what, 26, he wrote a humorous account, an humorous account, which is correct. It's an humorous account when you write it out. A humorous, a humorous account, there we go, of New York's Dutch history called A History of New York by Diedrich Knickerbocker, which is the New York Knicks are the New York Knickerbockers, by uh, the way. I forgot about that. Yeah. It's just every name is another fake. I'm just saying. You know, it's like you're really wearing me down here with all of these names. Oh, okay. There's one more amazing one. Okay. I can't wait. Um, Anyway, so that was in 1809. (sighs) Then some stuff happens, you know, life and the War of 1812. And he went to England after that to take care of business and he got to meet Sir Walter Scott. And I think. This kind of re-energized him and reminded him of his passions. And, you know, we all need that sometimes. Says you. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch. (laughs) Sir Walter Scott, I was trying to think about what he was most famous for. And Ivanhoe is what I came up with. Okay. Was the cartoon Ivanhoe a thing over here in the 90s? Do you think that I was... Alive in the 90s? Alive and conscious in the 90s. I've I've heard of it through you, I believe. Yeah, in England, it was uh, like a Saturday morning cartoon, and it was like the adventures of Ivanhoe or some shit. How accurate it was to Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, could not tell you. Probably not at all, but... Whatever. You know, there was also like the cartoon of the Three Musketeers, which definitely wasn't accurate to the original story. Um, I think the most accurate version of the cartoon version of the Three Musketeers is the, what is it, the Three Mouseketeers or whatever? Oh, hell yeah. The Mickey Mouse version. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I keep, okay, please continue. Uh, So yeah, Washington Irving is probably all excited after meeting Sir Walter Scott and probably reading his translation of The Wild Huntsman. And he writes this thing called the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's very ironic. Sketchbook by someone. Jeffrey Crayon. Crayon. (laughs) Did he found Crayola? And it was published anonymously (laughs) in seven parts between 1819 and 1820. And it was a collection of short stories and maybe some other like short essays and random pieces of writing a lot of them are about england but six chapters are some of the first pieces of americana and those are where both rip van winkle and the legend of sleepy hollow two of his most famous stories were published and both of those are based obviously on german folktales do you know what rip van winkle is about no Every like everyone knows that Rip Van Winkle is a guy who just fell asleep for a really long time. Okay. He fell asleep for 20 whole years, which sounds like the dream. Oh. When he wakes up, his wife is dead and his daughter was grown up and married and America was independent and that was it. <laughs> the end. He slept through the Revolutionary War. That's the whole story. Wow. <laughs> his story is very interesting. Let me hear it again. <laughs> 
so I fell asleep for 20 years. Well, no wonder I've never heard of. Well, I've, it's not that I've never heard of Rip Van Winkle. I have heard the name. Maybe that's why I've never looked it up because it's just. I think it's that it's that thing where like, oh, I know he slept for a really long time, but I'm sure there's more to the story. There's fucking not. Yeah. It's part of public knowledge that he's a sleepy boy. Yeah. Is there a, is it a fable? Is there, you know, some sort of theme or like. Am I supposed to learn a lesson from this? Who knows? I'm going to look it up later though. (laughs) Literary analysis of Rip Van Winkle. Who the fuck is Rip Van Winkle? (laughs) Oh man. The sketchbook was the first American publication to gain international success. Fun fact. And that's what encouraged Washington Irving to continue writing. But no one knew that he was Jeffrey Crayon at this point. Okay. <laughs> Jeffrey Crayon. <laughs> that should be uh, a D&D name or a Call of Cthulhu name. Jeffrey Crayon. Char- character Maybe name. Like Jeffrey Crayon. Ronald Crayon. <laughs> <laughs> Ronald McCrayon. Ronald McCrayon. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm tearing up. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> So he travels around Britain some more, and Germany, and Spain, and Austria, and France. Maybe he had his own little grand tour type of thing. Good lord. And he eventually travels some more around what was the U.S. at the time, and then went to live in Terrytown again, and and was happily ever after. Blah blah blah. Um, also, he was supposed to be admired by Edgar Allan Poe, who in turn inspired Lovecraft. So we're here for that, yeah. I guess. So, okay, the story of the true, the real and true story of Sleepy Hollow is, again, narrated by Diedrich Knickerbocker. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I think it was popular in the 1800s to just write a story that was narrated, you know, like you set the story as being told by a story who by a, a or by a guy who heard the story elsewhere. Mm. So like Diedrich Knickerbocker is saying, Oh, here's a story I heard 30 years ago and now I'm just going to write it down. So it's like a recording of an oral tradition kind of yeah. vibe. Yeah. Uh, it's very descriptive and atmospheric kind of like we were talking about earlier, the, the horror scene being atmospheric and it's set in 1790 in the town of sleepy hollow a fictional town near the real terry town and near the site of the battle of white plains which was part of the revolutionary war in 1776 where a hessian soldier did get his head blown off by a cannonball and the north part of terry town did eventually change its name to sleepy hollow in 1996 and this is now where the real life old Dutch church is, which is where the horseman is supposed to actually be buried. And then there's also the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery where Washington Irving, Washington Irving is buried. And then so you have Sleepy Hollow and Terrytown. And then there's also Irvington now, obviously named after Washington Irving. And I think they all just kind of argue about like which of them is the real Sleepy Hollow, but whatever. Did you say the man's name whose head got blown off? No, he's just a Hessian soldier. I don't know if I don't know if his name is recorded or not. Okay, it's interesting that you mentioned that he's supposedly buried in that du- that Dutch church. Like, damn, there's got to be 
a grave marker that just says to all of the soldiers and they're like that dude's probably buried there well if we do our niagara road trip one day we should just make a little stop in this area for a day yeah because it's right there yeah yeah and the hessians were german soldiers from two different states in germany and the hessian is a term that was applied by the patriot armies and they are typically described as mercenaries but technically more accurately they were an auxiliary force of the british army another fun fact the atmosphere in the story is all dreamy and like i don't know surreal and the townsfolk are described as very superstitious and i think he said somewhere that he named the town sleepy hollow or critics have interpreted the name of Sleepy Hollow as a way to describe the way that one feels in Sleepy Hollow, like dreamy and caught up in the moment. I kind of imagine it being like when it's foggy or raining outside and you want to like curl up with your book and your cat and, you know, like that kind of vibe, the cozy vibes. If you had like an outdoor book nook in a little shed, walls made of glass, that'd be a Sleepy Hollow. I almost said Sleepy Hollow. Sweepy hollow. <laughs> <laughs> I I hate that baby talk. I, I really know. do. Talk to it's that. fine. I talk to my cat like that. I know you do. <laughs> also, some people thought that that vibe could be a metaphor for yellow fever, like a miasma that you can't escape from, which is less nice. But it is a cool interpretation. I don't really think it fits with the rest of the commentary made throughout the story, though. So, And the legend of Sleepy Hollow is obviously that it's haunted by this apparition of the headless soldier who searches for his head after it was blown off by the ca- cannonball. Ichabod Crane, man. Did you know he was a real person? I had a feeling. That name is too cool. I know! It's such a cool name. I also... Imagine one day I'm going to get a pair of white cats and I'm going to name them Ichabod and Irving. Nobody steal my idea. I will hunt you down. How would you know? I don't know. I just know. I would just know. Yeah. I'll send you a picture of him because he looks like a vibe. Oh, goodness me. Yeah. And then there's a picture of his grave as well. Very nice. Uh huh. Okay, but look at that guy. Mm-hmm. And then listen to the description of <laughs> Irving's Ichabod Crane. Tall but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, and his whole frame most loosely hung together. One, doesn't look like that guy. Two, sure shit, does not look like Johnny Depp. No. Well, this guy's old as hell. Yeah. He also died in the Revolutionary War. Ichabod Crane? Yeah. It says he died in 1857. Oh, he died in a different battle. Sorry. He was in the Marines for 45 years. I think he became a colonel in the... No. He was born after the war. He was born in the... What am I thinking? Maybe it was a civil war. I can't remember. He died in a war. I know he died in a war. I'm assuming it was a civil war if it was 1857. Uh, Civil war was 61 to 65. Fucking hell. Okay. Well, he died in a war. He died in a battle. 
I read he succumbed to his wounds. He probably just got like stabbed by a disgruntled person. Like, get out of my way. <laughs> Let me do a, a quick goo. Didn't grow up in this country, okay? <laughs> um, hold on. How the hell did you die, sir? Oh, he was just on active duty. You just got run over by a carriage, probably. Mm. Looking at looking at Darren. Looking at Darren. <laughs> anyway, there is no evidence that Washington Irving ever met the real Ichabod Crane. So maybe he just saw in his his name in the newspaper and thought it was a cool name because it is a cool name. I would name some characters. I think I've done that with Call of Cthulhu characters before, but like that's kidding? a cool name. Okay. Yeah. The real guy was a colonel. Irving's character is a schoolmaster, which apparently was like the thing to be back then. It meant that you got a rotating schedule of free room and board, just take turns staying with different families. They would host you. So he probably knows all the juicy gossip that's going on around the town. And schoolmasters were supposed to be like highly sought after as husbands, even though they didn't make a lot of money because they had to travel to different towns and they're good with kids and all you want to do is pop out babies with them. And they knew all the gossip in the town from living with all the different families and they were educated and literate and they seemed cultured because they had traveled outside of one community, unlike a lot of people at the time. So this probably offset the fact that his nose is described as looking like a weather vane, I guess. I mean, I guess you have to pick your battles. <laughs> if he was lanky and kind of uggo, but he seemed well off. I mean... And he really wants Katrina Van Tassel, a.k.a. Christina Ricci, probably because her family was wealthy. The Van Tassels were also a real family at the time. Uh, in Terrytown. She was 18, by the way. Love a good Van something. And then there's also Brom Bones. I think he kind of comes off like Gaston in the story, but not an asshole, just like, you know, a himbo. And he was dating Katrina, and everyone liked him. Ichabod's retelling kind of makes it seem like he's a bad guy, like the jock, you know, but I think that's just because we're getting Ichabod's biased perspective in the story mm -hmm. and not uh, an unbiased account. He was a perhaps an incel. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, some people have questioned whether Washington Irving was gay because he writes about Ichabod as being obsessed with food, even when he's fantasizing about women. Like, his fantasies about women are thinking about what they're good at cooking. Okay, there's layers to this. And he goes so far into describing, like, the meals. This is fascinating. I think it's a tool to show how greedy he is. Yeah, how he's attracted to lots and lots of delicious food and maybe being taken care of yeah and like wanting the daughter from the richest family in town mm -hmm. um similarly some people have interpreted that the fact that he's all scrawny but always hungry is a representation of famine but again i think it's all about him being greedy and like how he can't be satiated he'll always just want more no matter what he gets you know uh even katrina doesn't really seem like he actually likes her that much. He just likes that her dad has the biggest farm in town and what it would mean financially if he were to marry her. Again, very different from the Tim Burton movie. 
It's a very unsatisfied man. So Ichabod tries to slip in there by going to their house and giving her singing lessons and getting invited to stay for dinner and then telling ghost stories. Maybe Katrina was a goth goth bitch and she's into that. Yeah, good for her. Me too. (laughs) But Ichabod is also superstitious, even though he makes fun of the townsfolk for being superstitious. And he has to walk home in the dark after this and probably just kind of scares himself with the ghost stories and tries to use that as an excuse to get invited to stay the night. Uh, But Brom and his, and his name is Brom Bones, for God's sake. He's obviously the hottie of the story. This is getting ridiculous. They always play tricks on him to scare him on the way home. So I think that's part of it too. He's a little bitch. He's a little wet blanket. Yeah, one day he gets invited to the Van Tassels for a party. So he goes to that and there's that weird, you know, like Regency dancing going on. Love it. Hate it. Love to hate it. (laughs) We had to learn to do that. In my primary school, we had to like learn those country dances. See, those are kind of fun though. (sighs) Not when you're seven and you have to touch a boy's hand. Ugh. Did I ever tell you the story? about how having to touch a boy's hand yeah well see i had no problem with it i think it was like third grade or something like that in our elementary school choir we had to sing every year we had some like themed concert depending on what grade we were in and in third grade it was like american classics and so the song that my class sang was home on the range Oh, and no. I had to dance with a boy named Zachary Bennett, who I will name. Um, when I actually went home for the holidays this year, I saw him at a restaurant that my family and I went to. It was pretty insane. Um, but it wasn't really dancing. It was just holding each other's hands up in the air and then swaying back and forth and turning, right? Because we oh weren't... God. Most of the kids were not smart enough to do actual choreography. So it was just swaying and turning and such. Well, he didn't want to touch my hand so bad that he stuck his fists into his sleeves and was like, you could hold this. And so it looked like he didn't have any hands. And I would just <laughs> fully palm the top of his fist through his shirt uh, and dance that way. And we, he was the only one who did that. It was really embarrassing. Wow, Zachary, fuck you, yeah, man. Seriously. <laughs> I don't know what I did wrong. I hope you have cooties now. I brushed my teeth. So they do some <laughs> dancing. <laughs> like that. It's like there's that end of the spectrum, and then there's <laughs> Kira Knightley yeah. dancing with Matthew McFadden, and oh. everyone else in the room fades away. Oh. Those are the two ends of the spectrum. Oh. The female gaze. Yes. Am I right? Yes. That shit looks exhausting, though. <sighs> it looks exhausting. How do you remember all the dances, honestly? There's probably only, like, five different ones, and you, it's fine. Maybe. I hate dancing. Okay. So I imagine what's happening in this story is towards your end of the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then people start telling stories from the Revolutionary War, and then that turns into ghost stories. Nice. Which that's how every party should go. How many ghost stories do they have, honestly, at this point? Well, I don't know. When you're like outside walking around all the time and you're like, you don't really know what mental illness is. <laughs> exactly. 
you'll just come yeah, up with anything, you know, to explain what's happening. Around yeah. You. I digress. So he leaves that party and he's riding his horse home and he gives himself the willies again, thinking about all the ghost stories. And as he's coming up to a bridge, he notices someone on a horse behind him. That horse is like shadowing his riding. So like if he speeds up, the other horse speeds up. And if he slows down, the other horse slows down. And then he notices that the rider doesn't have a head. Whoa. So he starts going as fast as he can towards the church and his saddle slips off and he's clinging on to the horse's name is Gunpowder. He's clinging on to Gunpowder's neck. Gunpowder also only had one eye. Poor horse. Poor horse. And then he turns around to see the horseman stand up on his horse and throw his head, which was a pumpkin, at Ichabod. And it hits him on his own head. And I think he falls off the horse and the horseman rides past him and disappears. So the next morning, Gunpowder is in the village, but no one has seen Ichabod. And they go looking for him. And all they find near the bridge is Ichabod's hat and a smashed pumpkin. And no one in the village ever sees him again. And apparently Brahm and Katrina get married, thankfully. And Brahm laughs anytime the smashed pumpkin is brought up during ghosty time. I guess ghosty time happens a lot. <sighs> the dream but the narrator reports that Ichabod is alive and just moved to a different town with probably fatter more available women because that's what he's into sure. I guess um, historian Elizabeth Bradley that was the end of the story she says that he cleverly of Washington Irving he cleverly weaves together factual locations actual family names and a little bit of revolutionary war history with pure imagination and fantasy it's a melting pot of a story and thus totally american which i thought was a fun little quote totally batshit insane very <laughs> very american because america as an independent country was so new they didn't have their own culture obviously or folklore or famous americans yet so the story is historically significant for being the first American story, but also I think that's why his European influences were so important. If you think about the people who were immigrating at the time, Germans, Irish, Scottish, like all these places that had similar folk tales that served as the origin story for for this one. So it made it easier for them to consume because it was familiar. I also thought it was interesting that there's a real emphasis on that oral storytelling tradition here. The sharing ghost stories and such. Is that what you're referring to? Well, the fact, yes, the fact that there's a lot of storytelling in the story and the story itself is an oral, you know, it's a recording of a story that was told to the narrator. And I don't really think we see that too much anymore. I don't know if it's supposed to be representative of anything. I heard in one analysis that the lack of books in the town, which is, I didn't really talk about, but if you read the story, it's supposed to be noticeable, um, kind of represents the fact that these are superstitious people and they don't have time for science and learning and things that are developing in the city. And their worldview is based on these oral stories that are are being told you know it's, um, it's isolated and people have put forward that this is a satirical comment on the fact that stories aren't always reliable and that we as rational human beings need to question things 
like I said, this is a story written down by Diedrich Knickerbocker, <laughs> who heard it secondhand at least 30 years after it was supposed to happen. And Ichabod himself is made to look like a gullible idiot for believing everything and getting getting scared so easily by nothing actually tangible. So that's my literary analysis of <laughs> The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. We can talk about the movie if you want. This just in Ichabod Crane is a little bitch. <laughs> Moral of the story, fuck that guy. Good lord. You started you started me off on one note talking about Freud and castration. We ended with uh, Hell yeah. Unreliable narrator and all my favorite things. <laughs> yes. I love to talk about oral traditions though. I know. Well, it's the anthropology degree, man. Yeah. Obviously the movie is way different. What a cast though. Johnny Depp, Christina Ricci, Christopher Lee, Michael Gambon, Miranda Richardson, Christopher Walken. Oh, I forgot about Christopher Walken. Yeah. The best role he's ever played. Well, he was a filed teeth. I, I mean, he has literally no speaking lines, so I just I think his best role was in hairspray. Thank oh, you. Right. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I I don't think that I've seen any other rendition of Sleepy Hollow now that I think about it. There's gotta be a Disney version. There is an animated Disney version. It's from like the 50s or 60s or something. Okay. It's really old. Um, but that one is much more accurate to the story where Ichabod's really ugly and is eating all the time or something. I can't remember. And then there's that uh, TV series that they made, which I also haven't seen. That's right. That one's really recent, right? Yeah, like within the last 10 years-ish. Was that a CW show? <laughs> Probably. I think so. It was like oh, it was on at the time that like Green Arrow was on and oh, that God, um, yeah. elementary, that Sherlock, that modern Sherlock show. Oh, did you ever watch that? Sure didn't. Grim, Grim was out Grim, at that time. Also really good. Um, it was on Fox. Oh, yep. That sounds right. Probably why I did not watch it, to be honest with you. I like Ichabod being a constable investigating the murder way better. And still but, a little bit. Yeah. But I'm also a true crime girly, so what kind of um what what does that represent when he's the investigator? I I do remember of the movie he uh dissects the bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone is like, what are you doing? And yeah. he's like, fucking science, man. Yeah. Which kind of ties in with that whole they're all superstitious and they don't do science. They just Yeah, they just believe what they see and hear from each other. Groupthink, that's another thing that's sort of represented there. How once a few people start believing in the way that something is, a bunch of other people are going to believe it real quick. That like hysteria almost. Mm -hmm. My favorite part of the movie, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I think it's right at the end when they find the head because Miranda Richardson, aka Rita Skeeter, Mm-hmm. was hiding the head so she could control Christopher Walken with her witchcraft. And they find the head. I think Johnny Depp throws it at Christopher Walken and he catches it and just puts it on. And then his um, face reappears. You know, it it reflushes itself. <laughs> oh. And then he pulls Miranda Richardson onto the back of his horse and gives her like 
the creepiest, rapiest look with his filed down teeth. Okay, I do remember that. I do remember that. And then they go into the tree, which I assume is a gateway to hell. And then yes. there's like blood coming out of the tree and stuff. Yep. Okay. I had to look up a picture because I knew exactly what you were talking about. And, um, you know, he kind of looks good. Christopher Walken? Yeah. <laughs> With the filed teeth? If you ignore that. If you just ignore that. I mean, that movie's like, what, 25 years old at this point? No, uh, 20? Yeah, 1999. We, yeah, we looked it up when, last time I put it on. It's 20. Yeah, uh, 25 years old. <laughs> Aha! Fascinating. Almost uh, as old as me. Well. Thank you for sharing that. That's my... That's what I got today. Well, that concludes this week's broadcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you wish to stay in touch, reach out to us at broadcastfromthebelfry at gmail.com or stalk us on Instagram at broadcastfromthebelfry. Again, I hope you've enjoyed our little show. Please rate and review. And until next week, stay spooky.